Good morning. This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Europe Subcommittee will come to order. I'm pleased to be joined by Ranking Member um, Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, as well as Senator Murphy from Connecticut. Supporting peace in the Western Balkans remains an important U.S. priority, and I hope that our discussion today will address how Congress can best support the efforts that are already underway. There should be no question as to why this region matters for U.S. security. It was not that long ago that we witnessed the breakup of the former Yugoslav Republic and saw the horrible and unrepeatable tragedy of war in the region. It's been a priority in the ensuing decades to repair the damage from that conflict and build a prosperous and peaceful region in the heart of Europe. I had the privilege of visiting the Western Balkans in 2010, and I returned several times, most recently, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Srebrenica massacre. Together, we've witnessed remarkable progress for peace, democracy, and equality in the region. Montenegro and Serbia have opened accession negotiations with the EU. Similarly, Albania and North Macedonia are awaiting the official opening of EU accession talks. Albania, Montenegro, and North Macedonia are now members of NATO, and we have deep engagement through diplomatic and defense relations, including a recently announced forward-based Special Operations Forces headquarters in Albania. But there are also concerning developments in areas where we still need to improve the pace of progress. That's why we've convened this hearing today and very much appreciate our witnesses joining us. Bosnia faces an uncertain future, as Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik wants to undermine the unified government by pushing for the succession of Republic of Srpska. His efforts to withdraw key institutions from the unified state risk the unity at the heart of the Bosnian state. At the same time, political power struggles prevent the government from functioning and corruption stalls economic development, driving young people to flee the country. Across the Balkans, improving economic development and prosperity is a key concern for ensuring a stable and democratic future. To address a lack of employment and prevent young people from seeking prosperity elsewhere, we must look toward better regional economic integration, like that of the Open Balkans Initiative, which shows promise for building connections among neighboring economies. Another sign of a robust democracy is a government that is transparent and accountable to its people. Here, too, we're seeing positive developments as we've seen major reforms, particularly in the judicial sector, take hold in some countries in the region. I also want to express at the outset my appreciation for those Balkan states who stepped up to host Afghan refugees who are awaiting resettlement in the United States and other countries. It's especially poignant that in a region which has long known conflict, many are opening their arms to people fleeing conflict on their own. And here in the United States, we very much appreciate that. Finally, we've seen years of hard-won peace in the Western Balkans. But as often the case, this is a fragile peace that requires constant attention to maintain. With the events in Ukraine and with Russia's continued threats to democratic values there and around the world, it's all the more important that we stay the course in the Western Balkans. That's why I've been pleased with the high level of engagement from this administration in the past few months, and I want to acknowledge the efforts of the State Department and USAID, including Administrator Power's recent visit to the region. I also want to recognize the embassies who have submitted letters for this hearing. 
Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia, and Serbia. Without objection, these statements will be entered into the record. Um, once again, before I introduce the people testifying today, I, I just want to take a minute to reiterate the need for us to act to get U.S. ambassadors in place. Currently, we have a vote on nominee, we're awaiting a vote on nominee Christopher Hill to be ambassador to Serbia. Ambassador Hill is a career diplomat, one with extensive experience in the region, and his expertise is needed to advance our national security priorities there. So I'm hopeful that we will see Congress move on his appointment as soon as possible. And we must not underestimate the importance of keeping a critical eye on issues of concern in the Western Balkans while working at the same time to build a positive and prosperous future that's grounded in European integration. I hope this hearing will help us in that. And um, let me just introduce our witnesses who will begin after Senator Johnson's remarks. Our first witness today is Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs at the Department of State, Gabriel Escobar. Mr. Escobar also holds the title of Special Representative to the Western Balkans, where he has been numerous times since his appointment last fall. Mr. Escobar is no stranger to the region, having most recently served overseas as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Embassy Belgrade. His Balkan expertise goes back even farther in his long career as a diplomat. From 1998 to 2001, Mr. Escobar completed four consecutive tours in the Balkans, in Banja Luka, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Podgorica, and Belgrade. We're fortunate to have someone with such deep and long-standing knowledge of the region in your position, Mr. Escobar, and we very much look forward to hearing your testimony. Um, Ms. Lisa Magno is Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Europe and Eurasia at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Ms. Magno also comes from a recent tour in the region. She was the USAID Mission Director in Kosovo for three years. Her experience with USAID over the last 30 years has taken her all over East Asia and Latin America, where she's worked closely with civil society and local partners implementing USAID programs. We're grateful to have Ms. Magno here representing USAID and the work they do in the region, which we know is very important for administrator power. So with that, I will turn to Ranking Member Senator Johnson, and when he is finished, ask our um, witnesses to testify. Senator Johnson. Well, thank you, Madam Chair. I'd also like to welcome our witnesses. I'm looking forward to your testimony and our discussion uh, regarding the, the Western Balkans. Uh, I think what's kind of noteworthy about this hearing, and by the way, I, I would just ask my written opening statement be entered in the record because I'd be repeating an awful lot of things that you just stated, and I think that's what's noteworthy. Uh, been a member of this uh, committee and subcommittee for a number of years, and we certainly have begun focusing more on the Western Balkans, Balkans and I know the countries of the region want U.S. involvement. I think, I think it's always interesting. It seems like they want, our, they want our involvement in their disputes and they want us to side with them, uh, impose a solution. We're just not going to do that. We're not going to do it on a bipartisan basis. 
And whether it was this administration or the previous administration or the administration before that, uh, we've been paying attention to the region because we realize stability in the, in the Western Balkans is important. We want to be supportive of stability. Uh, we are concerned about China's initiative. Uh, we want them to embrace the rule of law, uh, reduce corruption so that uh, foreign investment can flow in there, uh, the right kind of foreign investment. So I think the fact that we're holding this hearing should send a very strong signal that we're paying attention, we want to be supportive, um, we're not going to impose solutions, and on a bipartisan basis, regardless of administration, re regardless of Republican or Democrat, uh, we want to see peace and stability in the region, and we're going to be supportive of it. Uh, so with that, I'll, you know, again, enter my remarks in the record and, and look forward to the testimony. Thank you very much, Senator Johnson. Das Escobar will ask you to begin. Chairwoman uh, Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the sub subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to discuss engagement in the Western Balkans. A Europe free, whole, and at peace remains in the United States' vital interests and at the core of our policy. The Western Balkans is central to this vision, although its potential remains unfulfilled. The Biden administration recognizes this challenge and remains committed to the region, which is an indivisible part of Europe. Our longstanding diplomatic engagement supports the Western Balkans' full integration into Euro-Atlantic structures. A stronger Balkans integrated into a strong Europe means a stronger transatlantic community. The United States continues to deepen our partnerships in the region. In the past few months, we celebrated 140 years of diplomatic relations with Serbia and held our first bilateral defense consultations in five years. We announced a forward-based Special Operations Forces headquarters in Albania, wel welcomed Croatia into the visa waiver program, and relied heavily on our partners in Kosovo, Albania, and North Macedonia in an hour of need to tempor temporarily host thousands of Afghan evacuees. We continue to build America's economic ties to the region. In the past year, we launched the inaugural U.S.-Montenegro Economic Dialogue, bolstered European energy security through projects in Albania and Croatia, and celebrated significant investments by U.S. firms in Serbia. Our partners are set on integrating with the European Union single market and regional initiatives such as the EU common regional market, open Balkans, and green agenda show that deeper economic cooperation is indispensable for growth and EU membership. There are vast opportunities for U.S. businesses, and we encourage countries to strengthen the rule of law, fight corruption, and increase transparency to expand investment opportunities. These reforms will increase prosperity, prioritize clean energy, and stem the brain drain. Indicators of progress toward EU integration include deeper regional cooperation and growing democratic and economic development. We have seen earnest efforts to strengthen democratic institutions and counter corruption in the region, but there have also been setbacks. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, the ongoing political crisis and endemic corruption hurts its citizens and jeopardizes regional stability, Euro-Atlantic integration, and progress achieved since the Dayton Peace Accords. 
We continue to make clear to all leaders that de-escalation of rhetoric and resolution of differences through constitutional processes are the only paths in democracies. <coughs> Along with our European partners, we are vigorously engaged with local actors to find ways forward on the path from Dayton to Brussels, including through step-by-step -step reforms that will benefit all of the citizens. The need for dialogue, compromise, and reform applies across the region. We strongly back the EU-facilitated dialogue to normalize relations between Kosovo and Serbia. The dialogue is the forum in which both sides, as equals, must work together to resolve their differences and find a comprehensive agreement which both countries need for the European futures. We believe this effort should be centered on mutual recognition. We continue to work with our EU partners to advance EU integration in the region and reinforce the importance of keeping Europe's doors open as the most important incentive for reforms. North Macedonia and Albania have made significant reforms and sacrifice and deserve to advance in the accession process. Forward momentum would be proof for the entire region that difficult compromises enable a better future. Conversely, our warning to actors who engage in corrupt, destabilizing, or anti-democratic behavior is clear. There will be consequences. In December, we utilized global Magnitsky authorities against an organized criminal group operating in the region. In January, the Treasury Department designated Milorad Dodik and a television station under his control using new Western Balkan sanctions authority. The State Department also imposed visa restrictions under our Section 7031C authorities against corrupt officials. We will use all available tools to hold accountable those who block the region's progress for their own financial and political gain. Regional progress is also threatened by foreign political and economic influences from Russia and China. Russia weaponizes its energy supply to coerce politicians, foster corruption, and stunt growth potential. It also fans ethno-nationalism and divides and distracts from a brighter future. The People's Republic of China is expanding its presence by building critical infrastructure through opaque and predatory loans and so-called investments. Promising transparent uh, promoting transparent governance, human rights, and a rules-based international order will remain the core of our engagement against these destabilizing activities. In closing, the Western Balkans have been the focus of sustained U.S. engagement, investment, and bipartisan support for three decades. The results are clear. The countries of the former Yugoslavia now include four NATO allies and two EU member states. Among the countries of the Western Balkans, four are NATO allies and all are either EU aspirants or EU member states. Our job is not over. Our continued leadership, including here in the Senate, remains essential to completing the transformation of the Western Balkans into stronger partners able to contribute to global peace and prosperity. We continue to stress the need for a fully confirmed slate of ambassadors in the Western Balkans, most notably our nominee to Serbia, who is awaiting confirmation by the full Senate. I will continue to work with Congress on this effort and welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Magno. Thank you. Uh, Chairperson Shaheen, Ranking Member Johnson, distinguished members of the subcommittee, 
Thank you for inviting me to discuss the U.S. Agency for International Development's work in the Western Balkans. Thanks to generous bipartisan support from Congress, USAID has partnered with citizens and governments of the region to support their aspirations for a democratic and economically prosperous future. Starting with Bosnia and Herzegovina, during USAID Administrator Samantha Power's recent trip, she made clear that a peaceful and prosperous future for BIH depends on all political leaders and citizens working together to advance the reforms necessary to achieve BIH democratic and economic aspirations. In Serbia and Kosovo, USAID continues to support the European Union-led dialogue and its goal of comprehensive normalization of relations, including initiatives to promote regional economic cooperation. In Kosovo, where I recently served as USAID's mission director, USAID is increasing citizen demand for accountable institutions and promoting democratic and economic opportunities for all of Kosovo's citizens. USAID will also continue to assist the Serbian people and the Serbian government to advance democratic and economic reforms. In Albania, USAID assistance is addressing corruption, one of its toughest remaining development challenges. Similarly, in North Macedonia, USAID assistance is countering corruption, enhancing business competitiveness, and increasing opportunities for young people to contribute to the economy and their communities. From the pandemic to youth brain drain, USAID recognizes that many of the barriers to further economic and democratic progress are regional in nature and therefore require a regional response. USAID assists countries in confronting common challenges such as support to independent media and cross-border economic linkages. Beyond corruption, the pandemic is one of the most urgent regional challenges which has wrought damage on the health and economies of the Western Balkans. USAID is part of the overall U.S. government response to COVID-19 in the region. In addition, USAID is also assisting enterprises to survive, USAID is also assisting enterprises to survive the pandemic and prepare for an increasingly digital economy. Whether it is the Kremlin's efforts to subvert the region's fledgling democracies or the People's Republic of China's intention to capture partner economies, foreign malign influence is capable of reversing progress. USAID's countering malign Kremlin influence development framework informs our programming, which supports democracy and political processes, enables the media environment to resist disinformation, and diversifies economic relationships to minimize reliance on Moscow. A key tenet to countering the PRC's efforts to gain political and economic leverage in the region is ensuring partner countries are able to make informed choices and identify viable investment alternatives that do not require them to sacrifice their long-term interests in favor of short-term gains. USAID, in coordination with interagency partners, is developing a program to help partner governments understand investment flows, 
identify beneficial ownership, assess risk and opportunities, and analyze transaction terms to ensure transparent, beneficial investments consistent with national interests. This winter's acute energy crisis across the European continent has underscored the importance of USAID's energy programming. USAID is enabling partner countries to build and expand regional energy markets, diversify energy supplies, and build resilience in the system. This foundational work will strengthen the region's energy security and advance a sustainable and just clean energy transition. As we discuss the remaining significant challenges, it is equally important to highlight the strength of our partnership with countries in the region. This year, our partners stepped up to support at-risk Afghans who were evacuated or fled from Afghanistan in August 2021. North Macedonia, Kosovo, and Albania provided refuge to approximately 4,500 at-risk individuals. We are tremendously grateful for the refuge our partners continue to provide. In closing, I want to underscore that the Western Balkan region holds tremendous potential to demonstrate that dem democracy delivers. Ensuring that the region continues on this path will require a united front with partner governments committed to reform, citizens who continue to advocate for democracy, transparency, and rule of law, and coordinated assistance between the European Union and USAID. Assistance must also continue to be responsive to external threats to the region's Euro-Atlantic future. I look forward to continuing to work with Congress and welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. As you all can probably tell, there's a little bit of an echo. I think it's because we're on, um, we also have some people coming virtually, so I apologize for that and hope that People will just try and get close to the microphone as they're asking questions. Um, I would like to begin with you, Mr. Escobar, because I think it's important for us to have a sense of what the strategy is for the Balkans region. And so maybe you could begin with talking uh, a little in more detail than your statement about what the vision is for the region, what are the key elements of our strategy there, and how are we expecting to accomplish that? Well, thank you very much for that question. The, uh, our policy rests on three pillars, Europe, NATO, and regional integration. So beginning with the first, it's our belief that these countries should be part of the European Union. They are culturally, historically, and increasingly economically part of Europe, uh, and we believe that they should be members. Uh, and. The, our history of European integration for our partners has been one of uh, unqualified success. Every country that's entered the European Union is more democratic, more stable, and more prosperous at almost no cost to the rest. So that is the central feature of our policy in the Balkans. Our second is NATO for those who qualify. Uh, and uh, those who are not interested yet in NATO, uh, more NATO engagement. And nowhere is this more uh, visible than in Serbia, which is uh, politically neutral, but has increased its engagement with the United States and with NATO dramatically over the last two years. 
And finally, uh, regional uh, political and economic integration. That's why we support uh, Open Balkans, the common regional market, uh, and every other element uh, and every other program that creates strong institutions and greater um, interoperability with the European common market as a way of creating opportunities for multi-ethnic reconciliation um, and, uh, and inter-party dialogue, inter-country inter uh, dialogue. So those are the three policies, and we're pursuing all three very aggressively. Thank you. One of, obviously, one of the countries I've been following closely is Bosnia Herzegovina, um, and right now, a continuing disruptive actor, um, Mr. Dodik, is attempting to secede the Republic of Srpska from uh, the larger country. I was pleased to see the administration announce sanctions on Mr. Dodik and his activities, but. What more can we do as we think about how to address um, his behavior and support more um, integration in Bosnia among the ethnic groups there? Well, I do have to state that even though uh, Milorad Dodik is, uh, is a very difficult actor, he's not the only one. Uh, and our actions uh, against Milorad Dodik are directed at him as an individual and not against Serbs and not against Republika Srpska. That's very important. Uh, but the fundamental problem in Bosnia is not ethno-nationalism, it is corruption. Uh, uh, it is deep-seated corruption that prevents Bosnia from joining the success stories of the rest of the Western Balkans. It is the most corrupt country, in, the third most corrupt country in Europe, uh, it is the primary cause of uh, youth brain drain, uh, and it is the largest block to its Euro-Atlantic uh, aspirations. So our policy really is about creating uh, a more functional state through step-by-step -step reforms uh, that my colleague Matt Palmer is undertaking, undertaking along with his uh, European Union colleagues, uh, to make the f the the relationship between Croats and uh, Bosniaks in the Federation more effective to implement election integrity measures um, and to make the uh, the central state more more functional. At the same time, our hope is that Serbs will return to the central institutions. But until they do, our goal is to either political dialogue with opposition figures and other leaders to bring Serbs back to the table uh, and to prevent Dodik uh, either through political engagement or through sanctions from uh, uh, inflicting any more damage to the central institutions. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And Ms. Magno, how is USAID supporting those efforts? Through USAID assistance and um, close coordination with uh, stakeholders in Bosnia-Herzegovina, we are, for example, providing specialized training to prosecutors' offices to harmonize practices and processes for high-profile corruption cases. As an example, USAID has helped develop the checklist of quality indicators for investigative actions and criminal reports of law enforcement agencies. And this checklist will help ensure the legality of evidence collected and improve the quality of criminal reports submitted to prosecutor's office. 
We have also helped the Judicial and Prosecutorial Council adopt the Guide to Crisis Communications for Courts and Prosecutors' Offices. A third and also equally important um, approach that we have taken is to help uh, independent media, particularly investigative journalists. And we have just supported a state-of-the-art digital newsroom, which will allow uh, local journalists to better um, cover and expose uh, corruption. Over. Thank you. My time is up, so I will turn to Senator Johnson, but I know I still have lots of questions, and I'm sure my colleagues do. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Secretary Escobar, let's go back to uh, Bosnia, that region. Uh, I think we're at 27 years after the signing of the Dayton Accords. I don't think anybody envisioned we'd be kind of operating that region. Is that, that is their basic constitution still. Can you just give me, from your perspective, the history from the signing of the Accords to where we are today? You know, wh why is that really the, the governing document still in place? Well, Senator, uh, the idea behind Dayton really was about European Union integration. It was about a promise of being a member of uh, a larger organization that protects people's freedoms and, and uh, civil and democratic rights. That is still our goal. Uh, unfortunately, because of the dysfunction of the country and in part because of enlargement fatigue, uh, that promise has not been met. But it is still our intention. It is still our policy that these countries should be integrated into the European Union. So uh, Dayton has been very successful in keeping the peace for over 25 years. So it's an important document. It's the basis of our policy. Uh, we believe that we can help them improve their governing processes and help them uh, meet some of the requirements for European Union membership through step-by-step -step constitutional reform and limited, uh, limited constitutional reform and electoral reform that would create uh, the ability for the country to reach political consensus better. So it's still our, uh, our uh, goal to get them into the European Union. And, we, and by the way, that sentiment is shared by our Quint partners as well. Uh, in the meantime... Go ahead. Uh, in the meantime, uh, our engagement is still absolutely critical. Uh, our leadership is absolutely critical in the region, and this administration will continue to show that leadership. Uh, I think the thrust of my question was, what's gone wrong? I, mean, I understand what you want to do to try and make it right, but why, why is Dayton Accord still in place? Why haven't we moved on? What, you know, what have been the problems? What's prevented uh, progress? I would say that the primary problem is corruption. It is true that Dayton allows uh, a tremendous amount of opportunity for obstruction and uh, political delay. And those opportunities have been capitalized by some of the more powerful parties to further corruption and to capture the state. Uh, and that has had a very, very detrimental effect on the country. It's had a detrimental effect on the investment climate uh, and on their capacity to behave as a, as a state. Now, that isn't necessarily because of Dayton. It is almost entirely on, on uh, that, that blame can be laid almost entirely at the feet of certain political actors. Um, but we are confident that we can fix what's wrong with, with Bosnia through both uh, American engagement, limited reform, and a clear path to Europe. 
So what would you say are the greatest threats or dangers to the basic three pillars of our approach toward the region? Well, I would say that they're threefold. Uh, one is um, the lack of a clear vision uh, for European integration. The second is endemic corruption and the lack of rule of law. Uh, and that's something that we all agree on. That is our European partners and the United States. And third, uh, there is an increasing amount of malign foreign influence, both from China and particularly from Russia. So we have, a, have to have a plan, and we do have a plan for countering all of that. So you just transitioned to my next question. Can you describe China? We'll start with China, their, their involvement in the region. China's involvement in the region is mostly economic for now, but it, it does have political costs. So China uh, provides seemingly attractive infrastructure projects, loans, and so-called investments. Most of the time, those investments are non-transparent. They rely on government-to-government -government agreements, not open tender. They rely on keeping the details of those uh, deals as state secret and therefore not accessible to the taxpayers or the voters. And third, uh, it involves frequently um, not respecting the environmental and social standards of the countries. Uh, and I should add that almost never involves hiring local people to work on these infrastructure projects. So this, uh, what seemingly is an attractive investment, frequently becomes a debt trap. And nowhere is that more visible than Montenegro. So just real quick follow-up. So these are primarily uh, infrastructure types of projects. Do we have a sense of the total dollar value of their, I'll put quotation marks around, investments uh, in the Western Balkans? Do we, do we have some kind of sense, an estimate? It's in the tens of billions. And in some cases, it's a significant portion. The debt represents a significant portion of the country's GDPs. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Johnson. We now have Senator Cardin, who is coming to us on WebEx. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and let me thank both of our witnesses. Uh, I'm going to follow up on Senator Johnson's uh, questioning because, uh, Mr. Escobar, I think you're giving a much more rosy scenario as to the likelihood of progress. It's been since 1995. We've been following the same path in regards uh, to the Dayton Accord and the Dayton Accord was only supposed to be a transitional type of an arrangement. It wasn't supposed to be the final word in regards to the constitutional authority uh, for uh, Bosnia. So, and now you're mentioning that we've had systemic corruption there that is uh, blocking uh, integration into Europe. So uh, the problems seem to be getting worse rather than better. So to my question to you, you say you have a game plan in regards to China, you have a game plan in regards to Russia. Uh, I assume you have a game plan in regards to constitutional reform. Uh, you've imposed sanctions against Mr. Dodik, and I agree with Chair Shaheen that that's the, the, the right thing to do. Um, so how do we intend to engage uh, the parties to really move forward to the type of constitutional change, the type of uh, dealing with corruption? Uh, it seems to me, uh, how do you deal with the malign influence of Russia and China? And how do you engage Serbia more in regards to bringing about a, a more permanent uh, reform in 
Bosnia that could lead to integration into Europe? Well, thank you for that question. Um, before I talk about Bosnia and Herzegovina, I have to tell you a little bit about the context in which uh, Bosnia, in the neighborhood in which Bosnia and Herzegovina lives. The story of the Western Balkans is overwhelmingly a positive story. Of the seven countries mm -hmm. of the ex-Yugoslavia, two are members of the European Union and four are members of NATO. The, uh, no, the, I, the, 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 the saying, because I agree with you on that. I agree so, there's been a positive. So what, how are we engaging the other partners that have made a lot more progress in that region? To, whereas Bosnia, if you would have gone back a, a decade ago, I think we would have thought Bosnia would be one of the first countries to emerge. It's now lagging behind. It's, uh, I would say it is true that Bosnia is the most concerning country in the Western Balkans. So it does not share in the prosperity of the, others, of the other five. Uh, it is not on a solid uh, uh, integration track, uh, and the corruption is the worst anywhere else. And by the way, that corruption uh, is causing a brain drain and a net emigration that is 10 times that of Serbia. So it is at the top of our priorities. Now, it is true also that uh, there is nothing inherent about Dayton that prevents uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina from, uh, from moving forward as a democratic uh, and prosperous state. So it really is a lot about the entrenched corruption, uh, which we hope through engagement, through uh, development, uh, through capacity building, and through sanctions that we can address. Now, it no, is no, true that we can that. I, agree, I agree with you on the corruption issue. You're absolutely correct, and I hope we can do everything we possibly can. Uh, I remember the briefings we got during the Dayton Accord, uh, and it was very clear that it was aimed at resolving the conflict that was occurring, the violence that was occurring in Bosnia. But it was never meant to be the final word in regards to governance, that they knew that additional constitutional reform was going to be needed. It dealt with the practical problems of the ethnic communities, not so much as a final a way of resolving the governance of Bosnia. It seems to me you're saying you think that could be the final solution? I don't think so. I think the final solution is European Union membership. And uh, that's why we need to encourage our European uh, colleagues to show a clearer path uh, to, uh, to Europe for Bosnia and Herzegovina. And we have seen uh, alongside uh, with this administration, you've seen a new UK special representative, a more engaged European Union uh, external action service, and, uh, and an, a more invigorated uh, bilateral relationship between a lot of the countries in Bosnia and Herzegovina because um, the, uh, the crisis that's emerged with Milorad Dodik has bought into re stark relief the problems of Bosnia and Herzegovina. I agree with you that um, under uh, that Dayton was compromises laid upon compromises as a way of stopping the war. But in that regard, it was very successful. There hasn't been any conflict in Bosnia in almost three decades, and there won't be. Uh, so we need to work closer with our European partners to give them a vision of what they need to do and how they need to function as a government to be able to be a successful member of the European Union. Just, Just one, one last, last question. question. Wouldn't, Wouldn't that, that also include constitutional reform? It does. Now, we're starting with limited constitutional reform as a way of creating uh, opportunities on the ground for greater interethnic reconciliation and greater institutional functionality. Uh, and I do think that at least the core of that plan will be successful. Uh, thank, thank you, you. Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Murphy. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you both for being here today. Um, thank you to the chair and the ranking member for convening this hearing. Um, Mr. Escobar, I wanted to ask you about the current role of the high representative in Bosnia. Um, you served in the OHR office back in the 1990s. This is uh, a position that does have the authority to impose binding decisions, although the use of that tool is relatively rare. Uh, I met with a group of Bosnian Americans in Connecticut uh, earlier this week who were asking questions about why we don't press harder on the high representative to step in and be more forceful in some of these um, developments inside Bosnia as the country threatens disintegration. Um, it doesn't seem like it makes much sense for the high representative to stand on the sidelines. Um, what's our current position as to the role of the high representative? Do we think that the high representative can be more forceful than the position has been? I understand the Russians' position here that they want the whole thing to go away. Um, but what's the role here uh, to try to solve the ongoing stalemate in Bosnia? Well, I uh, I think, first of all, that, the, that it, it, it should be clear that the high representative is just one of the tools that the international community has to exert influence in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, now, we support, uh, uh, we strongly support the high representative and his role in, as a mediator. I, uh, I understand the concern of people who would like to see imposed solutions, but imposed solutions are not a democratic answer to, uh, to democratic uh, challenges. So we hope to be able to partner with um, European-minded, democratically focused political parties and leaders to be able to resolve for themselves the problems of their own country. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't support the bond powers of the uh, high representative, but we think that is a last resort, a nuclear resort, uh, um, and one which uh, then puts the onus on the international community to, uh, to implement. We think that um, that the political system and the political leaders, most of the political leaders of Bosnia and Herzegovina, are mature enough uh, and democratically focused enough to be able to resolve the differences through their own processes, and that's the way it should be. I, I don't mind referring to it as a last resort. I, I maybe wish we didn't refer to it as, as a nuclear resort. This is a legitimate power of the high representative. Understand the difficulty in imposing it, but if the choice eventually becomes the disintegration of the country uh, and the region into civil war versus a difficult decision made by the high representative, um, I, I think we'll have to carefully weigh the equities on both sides. I um, wanted to turn to the... Uh, well, if I, I can't sure. center on that issue. Uh, first of all, I don't see... Uh, this is not... Uh, the situation is not ana analogous to 1991. We have a European peacekeeping force. We have a high representative. Neither Croatia nor Serbia are interested in seeing a war on their borders. We have a NATO presence. So there are a lot of um, a, a, a lot of checks and balances to prevent conflict. So the the, the fundamental issue is that the, the high representative is and always has been on a path to um, to being phased out after certain conditions are met. We want to make sure that those conditions are met. Uh, so we don't see the situation uh, as destabilizing as some of the most um, uh, drastic uh, commentators see it. Okay. Um, I agree with you um, that so long as the impression remains that the path to the EU 
is difficult and rocky. It is really hard to press our friends in the region to continue uh, reform, and it is not coincidental uh, that you have seen the doors shutting to the EU at the same time that we've seen democratic backsliding in the region. Um, and so let me ask you about the uh, news last month that there will be a renewed discussion between Bulgaria and North Macedonia. That was welcome. Uh, it's been a, a year uh, or more since Bulgaria vetoed the ability for talks between North Macedonia and Europe to continue. Do you see um, hope that those talks can bear fruit? And what leverage is there for the United States with Bulgaria? Uh, to me, this is a disaster if we can't show progress towards Europe um, and why on earth we would let one country um, stand in the way. What more can the United States can be, what more can we be doing? Um, what hopes do you have for these discussions with two new leaders? Well, uh, both Bulgaria and North Macedonia are, uh, are valued NATO allies. Uh, and so uh, it's always been our hope that they can resolve their differences uh, through constructive dialogue and, and good faith uh, negotiation. And uh, both of these new governments have given us uh, assurances that they, that is happening. And so we support that, and uh, we hope that that can come to a conclusion in, within a reasonable period. That's fine. Um, that's a very diplomatic answer. But these discussions are not going to come to a conclusion unless the United States plays an active role and unless we make clear to the Bulgarians that um, it is in their interest um, as a Balkan nation to um, uh, make sure that there is a path into the European Union. So I appreciate the answer, but I, I will still uh, press for um, increased U.S. involvement at the highest level to try to resolve this, given that we have an opportunity to do it with new leadership. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Murphy. We have Senator Van Hollen on WebEx. Thank you, Madam Chair, and let me thank uh, both of the witnesses uh, here. And uh, much of the ground I wanted to cover has been asked about, including uh, a lot on Bosnia. Uh, I do want to ask both of you, starting with uh, Deputy Assistant Administrator Magno, about uh, the Russia and Chinese disinformation uh, campaigns uh, in the Western Balkans. Uh, there was a, a poll conducted, um, I believe, last July by the National Democratic Institute uh, that found that uh, these disinformation campaigns were having an impact. Uh, in fact, a majority of the respondents across the region agreed with the statement that, quote, democracy is a failed governing system used by the West to impose on countries in transition. Certain values aim to masquerade their geopolitical interests. Uh, we have seen a, a rise in, in illiberal thinking, in authoritarianism, in, in the overall region. Can you talk a little bit about these disinformation campaigns and whether we have any strategy to try to counter them? Thank you, Senator. Um, in terms of disinformation, um, a, a big component of what we're doing in uh, our partner countries is to help um, independent media um, in, in several ways. One is um, to help them provide um, quality content um, and second, also to make sure that they are on the path to financial viability, um, because without um, you know needed resources, it's uh, much easier for media app outlets to be either captured or essentially to go uh, out of business. 
Um, another component of our efforts is also to raise media literacy um, among the public um, and making sure that uh, there is discernment um, about the sources of information, uh, whether it's uh, through t traditional outlets or through uh, social media. Well, I appreciate uh, that. I mean, clearly we need to uh, bolster our strategy because uh, you know, the ability of, of leaders in these countries uh, to um, you know, pursue uh, policies of you know, freedom, human rights, democracy, um, obviously depend on their standing uh, with the public and how the public perceives uh, those ideas. Uh, turning again to, to, to Bosnia and Mr. Escobar, I know you testified quite a bit on this topic. Um, as, as you indicated, as we know, uh, we've imposed sanctions on uh, the Bosnian Serb leader, uh, Dodik. Uh, are we encouraging our European partners to do the same? Um, and would that uh, unity uh, prove to be more effective in trying to uh, accomplish our goals? Absolutely. And yes, we are in constant discussions with our European partners on uh, their ability to use sanctions, their ability to track money, uh, and their ability to impose visa bans on some of the corrupt officials in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, additionally, we've, been, we've had in the last couple of days uh, here in Washington some very productive uh, discussions with our UK colleagues who also uh, are very interested in modeling their sanctions regime closely with ours and coordinating closely on targeting. And that's a very important one because uh, the UK is a very important financial hub for Europe and a lot of money that comes out, a lot of the corrupt funds that come out of the, uh, the uh, Western Balkans transit through London or through New York. So the sanctions regimes are very, very important. So we uh, hope to see more from our European partners as well. Uh, thank you, and um, thank, thank you, Madam. Thank you, Madam Chair. And Ms. Magno, I'd like to pick up on his questions about the disinformation and what we're doing to respond to that. To what extent is um, USAID coordinating with the Global Engagement Center at the State Department and also with um, working with RFE and Radio Liberty on their efforts in the region? Or are there any efforts in the region? <clears throat> we are closely coordinating with both the Global um, Engagement Center as well as um, you know, having um, regular conversations with colleagues at RFE. Um, and um, we share information, analytics, um, you know, trends that, that we see, um, especially uh, those coming from our partners on the ground. Um, and um, and we also ensure that our our tactics or our approaches are consistent uh, with each other. And do you have any evidence that what we're doing is working? I have to admit the challenges are huge, um, and uh, we are trying to get our story, our own narratives out there to the maximum uh, extent uh, possible. Um, and I, I will uh, take your question into consideration um, and um, provide more information um, at a later time. More Thank specific. you. I would appreciate that.
Um, also, when I was in Bosnia back in 2010, so it's been a long time ago, but um, I was there with former Senator Voinovich, and we had a, a lunch with a number of young people. And it was probably the most impactful session I had throughout in our week in the region because the young people just that we talked to felt like there was no hope for a future in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So can you talk about some of the programs that you're working on in the region for young people, and are there examples of successful efforts that you can point to that you think we should be modeling in other places? Thank you for your question, and I, I totally agree. Um, that sense of desperation among the youth was also um, illustrated during the recent visit of our um, administrator to Bosnia-Herzegovina, and as well as by uh, almost four years in Kosovo, have had many conversations with uh, young people in the region. Um, one of the things um, that we're doing, for example, in, in Bosnia is um, in, in, in several of these countries, we are able to identify sectors in the private sector which have high potential. And in Bosnia, it's tourism. In Kosovo, it's agribusiness um, and um, as well as information communications and technology. And maybe just to elaborate, in, in Bosnia, what we're doing right now is um, to provide support to young potential entrepreneurs um, who can be um, future businesses, who can, who can start future enterprises in the tourism sector. Uh, we did a, a, a needs assessment and forecast, and we estimated that the tourism industry in Boston will actually require eight, something like 18,500 jobs if, you know, things go in the right uh, direction. So we're working with both young potential entrepreneurs as well as institutions of higher education to make sure that um, they understand international standards, they have the skills and capacities that um, will meet the demands of um, international uh, tourists. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, uh, to you and the ranking member. Uh, Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary Escobar, uh, I understand that you and your EU counterparts have recently urged Kosovo to establish an association of Serb municipalities. And while this concept has its basis in the 2013 Brussels Agreement, I'm concerned that this would lead to a Republika Srpska within Kosovo. Moreover, Kosovo's constitutional court has found the association concept, quote, not entirely in compliance with the spirit of the Constitution. Are you concerned that such an association could lead to the destabilization of Kosovo and take away powers reserved for Kosovo's central government? I do not. Uh, and uh, it, we support the formation of association uh, for many reasons. One is it is already agreed to. Uh, and even though the Constitutional Court uh, ruled that uh, some parts of the proposal were inconsistent with the Constitution, it did not say that the association itself is unconstitutional. So in the dialogue, within the context of the dialogue, 
Um, it is up to Kosovo and Serbia to decide how that would look. So it doesn't have to be, and we certainly don't want it to be, similar to Republika Srpska. But uh, we have urged, and um, my counterpart, Miroslav Lychak, has urged urged the Kosovar government to look at models that they believe would be compatible uh, with them that would not uh, that would not undermine their sovereignty or their functionality as a way of allowing Serbs to continue to receive health care, certain benefits, and education in Serbian language. Personally, I think that this effort, which would unwind Belgrade's engagement uh, in Serbian communities and offshore it to a domestic transparent uh, institution under the control of the government of Kosovo would actually enhance Kosovo's sovereignty, not detract from it. Let me ask you, I'm concerned that the state of talks, or lack thereof, is more due to Serbia's reticence to recognize Kosovo's sovereignty. What concessions are you seeking from Serbia to justify pressuring Kosovo in this way? Well, first of all, the dialogue, the purpose of the dialogue is to move everything in Kosovo's direction, to be quite honest, uh, with the end result of mutual recognition and normalized relations, something that they don't have already. So it is uh, not about Kosovo's status, but about the recognition that they are a sovereign and independent country. So uh, the dialogue is the mechanism, and it's proven itself to be an effective mechanism in resolving differences between the two countries. Most recently in September, uh, when uh, we, when the EU negotiated uh, a successful resolution uh, to the license plate uh, dispute with our support. So with our backing, and our backing to Kosovo is resolute, uh, we want to make sure that the dialogue helps them move through all the difficult challenges of unwinding the two countries' engagement, difficult engagement, to have a, um, a common European future together. Well, I hope that our commitment to Kosovo is resolute. Let me ask you, I've heard from many uh, of uh, Serbian diaspora here in the United States about the elections that are underway there and the, the lack of um, uh, legitimacy, the use of the government uh, in extraordinary powers as it relates to the elections, the resources that they're using that are not just their private political resources. So what are your insights into that? That is something that we uh, we openly uh, express our our concern about and privately engage with the government about. And there are three elements to this. One is the treatment of the opposition. So we believe the opposition should have uh, free and fair conditions to participate in the elections. Second, uh, the media environment. It is true that much of the the uh, the government controlled and private media in Serbia. Uh, is very favorable to the to the current government, and thirdly, uh, the treatment of civil society, those people who engage in democratic activities to monitor elections, to monitor media freedom, um, and to support uh, citizen engagement. Those organizations must be treated fairly by the Serbian government, and not just it's not just the United States who has made this clear, but also the European Union, the OSCE. Um, and not other international organizations that have been very clear about our expectations for the April elections in Serbia. But as of now, that that is not the case. As of now, there are definitely concerns about all of that. Yeah, one final question, I may, Madam Chair. Uh, you know, uh, Vucic traveled to Moscow in December seeking cheap gas, which he got, and returned the Russians got uh, uh, some uh, contracts uh, inside of Serbia. 
He was also in Beijing not too long ago to discuss a free trade agreement that he's now touting in his reelection campaign. Uh, it seems to me that both Russia and China are making significant inroads in the Western Balkans. What, uh, what are we doing to combat malign Russian and Chinese influences um, in this regard? Well, first of all, uh, it is true that the influence of Russia and China is malign in the Western Balkans. Uh, in the case of Russia, uh, Russia does not even, uh, is not even in the top 10 uh, uh, biggest trade partners for the Western Balkans. Um, it is mostly about energy. So on the energy security front, we have encouraged Serbia uh, to look at alternatives to Russian gas, including renewables and liquid natural gas, and we have made some progress there. Uh, with regard to the political uh, influence, uh, over the last year, Serbia has become more aligned uh, with European Union foreign policy, including not recognizing Crimea. So we are making inroads politically on that. In the case of China, uh, we have encouraged reforms and greater transparency in the procurement process that gives Chinese firms uh, and uh, the Chinese Communist Party a leg up over American and European uh, countries. But one of the reasons that we support a more integrated uh, market for the Western Balkans is that if it is more integrated and more integrated with Europe, with, with institutional standards that match those of Europe, it will create opportunities for greater transparency, uh, greater uh, openness in procurement, and requirements for environmental and social um, uh, impact um, easements that will give American and European firms the advantage uh, over Chinese in the region. I look forward to following up with you on some of these issues. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Senator Johnson. Hey, Madam Chair. Uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Escobar, I want to return to uh, Serbia and Kosovo. I spent a fair amount of time traveling back and forth uh, between Serbia and Kosovo during the previous administration, uh, trying to help facilitate agreements. Uh, I, I really thought Ambassador Grinnell did a really good job, and I thought it was an excellent strategy to forge an agreement really based on economics. I mean, there's, there's so many areas that they disagree on, but I think one thing they definitely agreed on was how can they improve the, the lot of life for their citizens. So I uh, always felt the every additional agreement, you know, success builds on success. The agreement between Kosovo and Montenegro on their border dispute, then the agreement between Greece and North Macedonia on the name, and then the economic uh, agreement between Kosovo and Serbia. Can you give me your perspective of, of what is the current status of, of that agreement? I, I know it's not been fully taken advantage of, of let's put it that way. Well, it's, uh, uh, Secretary Blinken said in his confirmation hearings that it's our intention to build upon the successes of the previous administration. Uh, and the Washington commitments are part of that. Uh, I particularly like the idea of a moratorium on recognitions and derecognitions to allow diplomatic space for the um, the dialogue to make progress. But on the economic issues, I agree with you, Senator, that the, uh, the greater the integration is in the region, the more uh, easily we can tackle the political problems. And that integration is happening. Uh, and it's happening both uh, organically through European-led processes 
and increasingly through the Open Balkans Initiative. All of these promote greater business ties between the regions, um, greater ease of movement and travel, uh, the mutual recognition of, uh, of diplomas and certificates. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why we believe that economic regional, uh, regional economic integration is a winner, and we'll continue to pursue that. In my opening remarks, I mentioned that it seems like these countries do want the U.S. fully engaged and involved in the region, but oftentimes to impose the U.S. will on the other side to reach agreement. Uh, it's always been my viewpoint as well as I think the uh, – my understanding of, of every administration's viewpoint, that we're there to facilitate, to, to help the parties come to agreement between themselves. We're, we're not going to impose anything on anybody. Um, but at the same time, every now and again, we need, do need to apply some pressure. Uh, I have been concerned in my dealings with uh, both Serbia and Kosovo that you know, Kosovo has obviously recognized strong support for the U.S., and I think we, we all agree on that. But I, I'm a little concerned that they rely on that so heavily that uh, they don't really feel that they have to uh, provide the give in the give and take. I, I, don't, I don't know how many times on both sides I'd say, you know, negotiations really give and take. Uh, of, oftentimes heard a lot of the take, uh, not a whole lot of give. Can, can you just kind of comment on that? Well, we've been very clear with the government of Kosovo that our expectation is that they engage fully in the EU-led uh, dialogue, that they look at that as a true negotiation uh, in achieving their ultimate goal, which is uh, mutual recognition between Serbia and Kosovo, recognition by the five remaining European Union members uh, who are currently not recognizing Kosovo, uh, and membership in all of the international organizations that uh, they would like to be members of. So that will require compromise. Uh, and we've been very clear. And our, uh, our recently arrived ambassador, Jeff Hovenier, has made that very clear, beginning with his opening meetings with the Korti government. And he will continue to press that and will continue to support him as he moves in that direction. My concern is in Kosovo, I often heard that they were more than willing to forgive if, if a proper apology was provided. And that was pretty much their give. Uh, I think they probably need to do a little bit more in terms of uh, compromising good faith. Would you agree? Well, I, uh, I would leave that to my European colleagues because there is truly uh, a plan to move forward in the dialogue in a way that ends up with normalizing relationships. And it's more complicated than, than if I can respectfully disagree than just a simple apology. There are property issues. There are missing persons issues. There's energy issues and a host of other issues that we have to work through in good faith to achieve what we want to achieve which is a European future for both Serbia and Kosovo. So just talking, this will be my last question, just talking a little bit greater uh, detail, Russia's influence, not just in Serbia uh, or Kosovo, but within the Western Balkans in total. Can you just kind of speak in general what, what, what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish? What Russia is trying to accomplish, really, is to create a vulnerability within the Euro-Atlantic space. That's fundamentally what it is. They have found partners within certain countries that are willing to help advance those goals to keep us distracted from other issues, including Russia, Ukraine. Uh, they, uh, those parties are more likely than not to try to create ethnic division. Um, and they use misinformation, corruption, 
and in some cases attempted assassination to uh, achieve their goals. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, thank you, Senator Johnson. I, I want to pursue that a little bit because um, Russia has a long history in the Balkans and their attempts to court Serbia through military equipment, sales of military equipment, through energy, um, obviously gives them really undue influence in the region. So can you talk about, and I, this is for Ms. Magno as well, talk about the energy um, connections between Russia and the Western Balkans. Senator Menendez, I think, referenced um, the trip to Russia where Putin um, pledged cheaper energy for Serbia. But what are we doing to counter some of those influences, particularly around energy? Well, the, the, uh, the question of dependence on Russian energy is not solely a problem for the Western Balkans. Right. Uh, it's a problem for a, a good portion of Europe. Uh, but the, uh, the Balkans have an additional problem in that they are heavily dependent on coal energy. So we have a comprehensive energy security strategy that stresses uh, renewables, liquid natural gas, and alternative suppliers and routes uh, for energy uh, energy supplies. And we are uh, close uh, to unwinding some countries uh, from full dependence on Russian gas. Uh, and I would add that in that process, uh, there are tremendous opportunities for American companies uh, to help these countries both free themselves from their dependence on Russian gas and to move forward to a cleaner, uh, more renewable energy mixture. Well, I would certainly agree with that. Are we getting any takers from the United States in terms of companies who are looking at that at the region as opportunities? We are. We have several. Ms. Magno, can you add to that in terms of what um, USAID is doing? What USAID is doing in the energy sector is really to help the governments make informed choices and decisions. So a lot of the work that we do is support for uh, the government's long-term planning, market integration, as well as helping them with legal and regulatory reforms. So, for example, in Kosovo right now, we are assisting the ministry in drafting, helping draft uh, legislation that is around renewable energy. Um, we are also uh, providing technical advice to ensure that our partner countries, and many of them have made uh, or set ambitious targets in relation to what uh, the European Union requires with regards to uh, clean energy. And through our analysis and technical counsel, we are helping them um, meet those targets. Thank you. That's good to hear. Um, Mr. Escobar, what, what is going to be the impact in the Western Balkans if Russia does invade Ukraine? Well, as you know, Senator, uh, some of these countries are quite vulnerable. Uh, and they're quite vulnerable to uh, Russian malign influence. Uh, it is our hope, however, uh, that we can ensure that these countries remain stable uh, and, uh, and protected against any efforts by Russia to use the Western Balkans as a distraction for the Euro-Atlantic community from Russia and Ukraine. So we're watching very closely. 
uh, and, and we do have the bandwidth to watch both regions at the same time and make sure that we, uh, we try to insulate them. I would also say that in the region, the Western Balkans, three of the countries are, are NATO allies. So not only uh, are they uh, participating in the discussions on, on that NATO is having on that, but they are also contributing both um, to our efforts and to our messaging. And have we heard from any of the other countries who are not NATO members about concerns about Russia's activities? Every country in the region has expressed their desire to see a peaceful diplomatic resolution to the crisis. Good. Um, I just have one other um, area that I would like to explore a little bit. And as we're thinking about the challenges in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, and looking at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, U4 is increasingly important, I think, and yet its size has steadily decreased over the years. And so can you talk, Mr. Escobar, about um, how we're preparing for the next round of the UN authorization of U4 and how concerned we are about Russia's efforts to undermine the mission there? Well, Russia was not opposed to the uh, renewal of the U4 mandate. Uh, and I believe they won't be. Uh, it's in everybody's interest that the region remains stable, at least free from conflict. Uh, additionally, we're working with our European colleagues to enhance their capabilities, to enhance their capacity um, to, uh, to address various scenarios that could arise. Uh, and I should uh, mention that they also have an over-the-horizon reserve capacity to surge should they need it. So I'm confident that U4 is capable of doing the job that it was intended to do, which is keep the peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So you're not advocating that the size of the, the forces should be increased? We're advocating that, they, that the size of the force match the challenges um, and the requirements, and we're confident that it does. Good. And when is... Uh when is the U.N. authorization going to happen? Uh, I believe it will happen again in the fall, in and, the late fall. And do you know how long that will last? They usually last a year. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. Um, very much appreciate your responses to all of the questions and your continued commitment in to the region and hope that you will engage with this subcommittee and also with the full committee in terms of how we might be more helpful as we're looking at the challenges ahead for the region. So with that, I will conclude the hearing. And again, thank you both. Thank you.